Hello, Marvelites. You are listening to Marvel's Pull List for new Marvel comics on sale December 8th, 2021. I am Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Agent M. And I'm Tucker Marcus. Tucker, I almost said 2022. I forgot what time was even doing at this moment. It was wild. Shout out to my friend Aubrey Citizen, former Marvel Comics editor, and uh, he's a comic writer. He has a series called Beef Bros., <laughs> and it's amazing and hilarious. And he just got a second Kickstarter funded. That's awesome. That reminds me of the Marvel Comics character Beef, who I think has like maybe two appearances ever. He's like a 1980s guy. Among many of the like delightful, like one-off appearance weirdos in uh, Marvel history. Maybe you're the beef guy. Like Jason Aaron <laughs> is the orb guy. Maybe you're the guy who brings beef into prominence. We can look back to this episode, number 179 of Marvel's Pull List, where you unleashed the beef for the first time. Well. That's not all we're here to talk about. No, no, no. More than just beef and bureaucracy, (laughs) we are here to talk about all the brand new Marvel comics on sale this week. We're going to give you our picks, then we're going to give out some awards for some more books. We're going to get into uh, the new Marvel comics on Marvel Unlimited, the Infinity comics, the collections on sale this week, all that good stuff. And we even have a giant, awesome reading club. And who is our guest? This week, our guest is Brad Meltzer, and we're talking with Brad, who's so great, about what else but secret wars. It's time. It's happening. So we're going to dive into it all with somebody who really knows his stuff, Brad Meltzer. Heck yeah, but that's a little bit later in the show. Right now, let's dive into our picks for the week. We've got a lot of picks this week. Because it's the season of giving, and we are giving our picks a plenty. So we have numerous picks. First up is Amazing Spider-Man 80.bey throwing dot bey for beyond. At the end, makes me so happy. And this one is a little bit of a side story because it does not focus on any Spider-Man. It focuses on May Parker being awesome, Aunt May, and. Dr. Otto Octavius, the two of them together, they have a lot of history. Of course, Doc Ock was the superior Spider-Man, but there's romantic stuff that went on between Otto and May for years. There's also, there's just tons of really cool history, and they play into a lot of that. It is written by Cody Ziegler, with art by Ivan Fiorelli, with Carlos Gomez and Paco Medina, with colors by Rochelle Rosenberg, and letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. May's look is just... There's something about it in this. She just looks so cool. Like she is grandma-ish age and she holds herself with such dignity and care. There's this one shot of her. I'm looking at it where she's got her arms crossed. She's holding a glass of wine. She's got her like face turned up. She just looks so rad. She rules. Otto also in here. Dope. You could tell Cody is having a blast writing these characters, writing this scene, writing all what the two of them are together. It's really good. It's really funny. The two of them are infiltrating a prison complex to try to investigate and and learn a little bit more about what happened to Peter Parker. Obviously, Aunt May doesn't know that he's Spider-Man and how everything went down, but they're trying to... No one can, can really help Peter. He's been very, very sick. And this is May's way of trying to figure it all out. Otto, on the other side of things, has his own motives, but he is helping May as well. We get a lot of movement in this issue. I don't want to give anything away, but we're obviously, you know, like giving it that odd numbering so it fits between issues 80 and 81, but it feels very important to the overall beyond storyline that's going on here. So I highly, highly suggest you check it out. It is really cool, really fun. It just feels so great 
as a Spider-Man comic. Yeah. My pick this week is Devil's Reign number one. When we're talking about writer Chip Zdarsky, artist Marco Cicchetto, colorist Marcio Meniz, and letterer Clayton Cowles, and then gotta say assistant editors Danny Kazem, Ton Groneman, and editor Devin Lewis, there is an incredible creative team and editorial team behind this, and they're going to crush it. They're going to deliver, and, and they really, really do on this first issue. This is a big event book. This is a big story. It's the end of year for Marvel Comics. It's all going down here, and Marco is just delivering at an unbelievable level. The composition, the structure of his panel layouts – the drama, the emotion, the melodrama, the stuff that I love, it is just here in like crazy, crazy pound for pound muscle in this book when it strictly comes to art alone. It is absolutely gorgeous. Now, to get into the story a little bit, you know, essentially what happens here, and this is basically the premise of Devil's Reign in case you haven't been following along, Mayor Wilson Fisk given all that he's been through in, in recent years in Daredevil and obviously in the time before that, and given his position of power as the mayor of New York City and the fact also that he has tried his damnedest to do it the right way, that means the right way to him. So we've arrived at this point where he is enacting what's called the Powers Act and boom, simple. He's outlawing superhero activity in New York City. That's where we begin. We get to see each of the characters that has played such a pivotal role in Daredevil and then so many more reacting to the fallout of that. It is a fascinating premise for a book and there is so much to dive into. I love the pages in here with Ben Grimm. I love the pages in here with Luke Cage. There is great, great stuff a million great variant covers on this one, I got to say, and so many really, really exciting tie-in series that I cannot wait to dive into. There is so much more to come with Devil's Reign. Hell yeah. We've got another of our picks. It's Hellions number 18. It's the final issue of this run, and it's a big one. It's sort of the culmination of everything that's been going on, the Hellions being this team of murderers and psychopaths put together by sort of the, the bigwigs in Krakoa to take care of messy things, let's say, and led by Sinister. And so it's been 18 issues of fighting and backstabbing and secrets and really funny bits because it is written by Zeb Wells. Art in this issue by Zay Carlos and Steven Segovia. Colors by Rain Barreto and lettering by VCs Ariana Mar. It's a wild book. There's snarky interplay between all the characters on the team. The team being Havoc and Psylocke, Grey Crow, Wild Child, Orphan Maker, Nanny, and Empath. But it all has come to a head because Orphan Maker is a man, a very powerful mutant, but has been coddled and sheltered in a lot of ways by Nanny. And he's sort of arrested development in many, many ways. And poor Orphan Maker was trying to help and prove a point, but he went a little wild in the previous story and murdered some humans. And that goes against one of the three major rules of Krakoa. And so there must be repercussions. So this issue sees how the repercussions affect him, affect the rest of the team, affect all of Krakoa, some great dialogue and sort of world building around what it means for Krakoa to have these laws. And ultimately, the Quiet Council, the heads of Krakoa, come to a decision. And this decision and the, the ensuing scene that follows 
was so emotional. It's not surprising because the book has been very, very good for the entire run, but the emotional buttons it pushes and the ways it hits you, it is one of those things where you look at these 18 issues and go, that was a hell of a book. Closing this chapter like this is kind of a perfect way to go out. And I, if you've not read a Hellions title, go read like the 14 or 15 issues on Marvel Unlimited and then catch right up to this. It is spectacular. Uh, so I had mentioned that we we had so many books and because it is the season of giving, we can do whatever the hell we want because it's our show. So we're, we're giving three more picks. These also ruled and we freaking love them. And we wanted to shine a little bit of an extra spotlight on them. I'm going to start first with Giant Size Black Cat Infinity Score number one. This is the giant culmination of so many stories that writer Jed McKay has been putting together. The art in this is breathtaking by CF Via. There's some incredible, incredible acting. The facial work that CF does, especially with Felicia Hardy throughout this issue, really exploring her emotions and showing her as like mischievous and funny and playful and scary and dangerous and the smartest person in any room. You get a lot of that from her body language and from her facial acting, courtesy of CF Via. Uh, Colors by Brian Reber, letters by Ferran Delgado. And there's a bunch of really wonderful covers and variant covers for this issue. There's one by Dave Johnson that I think everybody's going to really, really dig. But this is the end of this run of Black Cat, but it's also the culmination of the Infinity Heist storyline that has been going on the last couple of months. So Black Cat has grabbed a couple of the Infinity Stone Wielders, brought them together, made them all souped up and weird and, and having them pull a thing for her. She's also got to deal with Nick Fury and Nighthawk and a whole bunch of stuff, as well as her guilt, her compassion, her desire to always come out on top. There's a lot of stuff going on. Is she a villain? Is she a hero? Is she something altogether very different? Yes to all of that. And I think that's what makes Black Hat so good and charming. To me, it kind of sometimes feels like an Indiana Jones comic in of like adventure and She's kind of a rapscallion and a jerk, but super lovable. It reminds me of Indiana Jones, even though it is nothing at all like Indiana Jones. <laughs> yeah. All right. Now, our next pick is Inferno number three. This is written by Jonathan Hickman. Pencils on this one. What an incredible trio are by R.B. Silva, Stefano Caselli, and Valerio Schiti. Inks by Adriano Di Benedetto. Colors by David Curiel. And letters by VCs Joe Sabino. It just superstar creative cast there. There is just so many different things going on. There are so many threads that are continuing from House of X number one. You know what I mean? Or Powers of Ten number one. Like we're still talking about that story. And I say that in the best, most excited way. Just incredible, beautiful stuff happening in this issue. My favorite scene, though. Give me any selection of the aforementioned books, and I'm probably going to be looking towards uh, a scene that contains a conversation, a simple conversation between Professor X and Magneto. And, you know, this one delivers again. This issue contains a great, great scene uh, with these two. And 
The art is absolutely gorgeous, and the way that it's paced visually, the way that you are getting these slow zooms on these characters' faces, that just speaks to the power of the dialogue. That speaks to the power of what's going on at this very moment. And again, that's not even scratching the surface of what's going on in this issue because you get some fireworks here for sure. But uh, yeah, in case it isn't obvious, this is one of those that's worthy of huge discussion, that's worthy of uh, so much analysis just on its own, but it's just absolutely fantastic stuff. Man, it's great. It's a masterclass in, in great comics, long-term storytelling. Um, all right, one more big pick because it's a great weekend. It's the season of giving, everybody. We've got Marvel's Voices Communidades, aka Marvel's Voices Community, number one. This is another of our Marvel's Voices anthology books with a ton of great creators doing really cool stories. This one is by and about Latinx characters and by creators of Hispanic and Latinx origins. And you've got great stories featuring characters from as recently as like the Reptile series, which that's, it opens it up. And then really cool stuff with the White Tiger, who, you know, I think about it now, White Tiger was, was kind of a big deal 40 odd years ago when he was first introduced. Getting a little bit more White Tiger in here was really cool for me to see. There's Miles' story. There's an America Chavez story. There's tons and tons in here. I wanted to give this some love. It is definitely something to check out for everybody out there. I also have to give a shout out because it's the first Marvel Comics work, I believe, for Alex Segura, who is one of my closest friends. So yeah, there's there's a lot of wonderful stuff in here. Hopefully this will introduce you to a bunch of new characters, lots of new creators, folks we don't always see on uh, Marvel Comics or we haven't in a little bit. So something for everyone, of course, you can go to marvel.com slash voices to dig even deeper into the stories, the characters, and the voices behind this issue. Nice. All right. That's it for our Huge list of wonderful picks of the week this week. And now we're diving to all of the fresh floppies coming your way this Wednesday. And we are diving in first with Amazing Fantasy number five, the finale of this series. And what a ride it's been. My beef prize goes to writer-artist Kari Andrews. This issue alone is such a wild ride and at the same time maintains the spirit of what you would expect a book that is titled Amazing Fantasy to feel like. You know, it has that storybook quality. It has that fun fantasy feel to it. I could give it my award to, to Kari just on that alone. I could give it to Kari just for the sheer amount of work that he's had to put into this series, which is an unbelievable achievement. But like, shout out to Kari Andrews specifically for daring to tell this story and then knocking it out of the park. So there are so many different elements there that are all so admirable and have made up a really, really unique five-issue series here. Hell yeah. Uh, we've got Captain America Iron Man number one this week, and I didn't know what I was expecting out of this, honestly. And I wasn't expecting a stealthy sequel to the Falcon and Winter Soldier series from a year or so ago, but that's what it is. And this time it's got Captain America and Iron Man is pulling some threads and some characters from that book that we dug a lot. There was some really cool stuff in there. Derek Landy writing both of those. Uh, it opens up with just scummy Iron Man, Tony Stark goodness, but I will give my beef prize to the deep 50 states initiative poll that they do in this issue, which I realize now 50 state initiative is now 15 years old. 
So I'm giving that beef prize here because there's some characters who I haven't seen in a long time who show up here. And I thought that was that was real neat. I'm excited for the next issue of this one. Next up, we have Death of Doctor Strange Blade number one. Who's cooler than Blade? No one. It is such a fun idea. He's a perfect character to tie into the Death of Doctor Strange, given the space he occupies in the Marvel Universe. I remember when this book was announced, and I remember Danny Lore freaking the hell out (laughs) that they were writing a Blade story. Oh my God, they did not hold back at all. This is a wild, awesome issue that I loved so much. And so much of that as well is the perfectly cast Dylan Burnett uh, with Mike Spicer on colors. Oh my God, that art team absolutely destroys this issue. I feel like editorial, Marvel editorial has talked in the past about what a tough nut Blade has been to crack. But come on, folks, I think Danny, Dylan, and company can do it. Uh, Anyway, anyway, I'll get off my soapbox. This is such a great individual issue. Yeah. We've got Fantastic Four Life Story number five. I believe the penultimate issue of the series. This is a big one because the threat throughout the entire run is that Galactus is coming. And so this is the issue. Galactus arrives. And I will not give anything away. I will say uh, there's a lot of interesting Silver Surfer stuff in here. There's some fun Doctor Doom stuff in here. I will give my beef prize to two things. Beef prize one is going to the sense of impending doom, a countdown of knowing when your world is going to end exactly what that feels like and how they pulled that off in this book. My other and probably the main beef prize here goes to Ben Grimm, the thing, punching something in space and going space punching is the best punching or space punching is the best punching <laughs> the closest I can get to a, to a Ben Grimm there. Um, but it's a great line. I love that one. Wonderful stuff. Hey, speaking of space punching, I don't know if anybody gets space punched in this issue, <laughs> but there are a couple of characters who definitely deserve it. This is star Wars number 19. This is a really Luke centric issue that I really, really enjoyed. It features a lot of Luke creeping about, which was great. And there are certain callbacks, references, visual touchstones that Luke experiences here that I really, really liked. I don't want to talk about it too much because it was such a cool moment to get to see, but the way the story ends, the direction that it's all going is very, very exciting. So my beef prize goes to page 17. I'll leave it there. Ooh, I like that. Uh, We've got one more Star Wars book this weekend. It's a big one. Star Wars Crimson Rain, number one. All kinds of stuff over the last couple of months has been leading to the reemergence of the Crimson Dawn, and it brings in stuff like the Knights of Ren. It brings in a whole bunch of various elements from across different parts of, of Star Wars lore. It's hard for me to pick one specific beef prize moment. I think it's the montage of how the Crimson Dawn crew starts to unsettle the galaxy, but also there's the ending. The last two panels, I think, are ones I would really point to. You have this great story and all this stuff going on, but the last two panels paint this picture of just like, oh, oh no, oh no, oh no, 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 what's going to happen? It's really fun. 
All right, wrapping it up this week with X-Men Legends number nine. As is the idea behind all of these X-Men Legends stories, we are jumping into a specific moment in mutant history. This whole story takes place prior to Wolverine number 69, and then that's the 1988 Wolverine series. Who's it written by? By none other than one of the goats, Larry Hama. This is a Wolverine and Jubilee story at its core. So with that at the center of it all, and with Larry Hama, one of the fiercest, most, you know, capable of like wild, vicious, exciting storytelling, you know that this is going to be an exciting ride. So beef prize to Larry. Um, This is another really, really fun, really exciting edition of X-Men Legends. I love the idea behind this series. So that wraps everything up for new comics this week and i will dive straight into infinity comics so many great infinity Comics series to read on marvel unlimited right now but new uh, infinity comic arriving this week comes in the form of x-men unlimited number 13 just been so much fun following around with those Heck yeah. Also on Marvel Unlimited this week, the first issue of Dark Ages. That's terrific. Demon Day's Cursed Web. Uh, so you need your Peach Momoko fix. It's in there. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, 15 issues of Hellions now on Marvel Unlimited. You can catch up on all of that. Then you just got to go out, pick up issues 16, 17, and 18 to get the full story. That is terrific stuff. Oh, yeah. And The Last Annihilation, Wiccan and Hulkling, because... Anytime we get Wiccan and Hulkling to talk about, it's a good day. What about collections, Tucker? Collections, we are wrapping it up uh, with collections now and a bunch of good stuff this week. I got to shout out immediately Beta Ray Bill, Argent Star. That is the Daniel Warren Johnson series that I screamed and literally cried about when those issues were coming out. Loved it so much. Uh, Immortal Hulk Volume 10 of Hell and Death is arriving. I know there are many, many folks who will be collecting each and every one of those Immortal Hulk volumes. Uh, And then also Reptile, Brink of Extinction. So check it out. Heck yeah. All right. As we mentioned earlier, our guest on our reading club this week is one Mr. Brad Meltzer. He gets to talk about a whole bunch of Marvel stuff, including Marvel superheroes, Secret Wars. Got to say the official title. I love it. Uh, There's much for us to get into as we talk to Mr. Brad Meltzer. Tucker, you know, we always talk about Brad at the end of the show, but that's our Brad, (laughs) who's part of our team. We are now bringing in the ultimate Brad and Brad Meltzer here on Marvel's Polis. Brad, how you doing? There are other Brads? I didn't even know. Who knew? <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a weird world out there. <laughs> um, Brad, thank you so much for coming on the show. Today, we are going to be diving into Secret Wars. I'm curious, what led you exactly to land on Secret Wars? First of all, I went for Secret Wars, the introduction of Spider-Man's Black costume, right? Because there's so much to discuss in it. But for me, I picked it because it was actually the book that made me start reading Spider-Man. And it became, of course, Spider-Man's the first Marvel comic I've written for you guys. 
and I had read Marvel before, of course, I had read all these other books, but for some, I mean, I was like the opposite of every other person. Like I'm reading John Burns, Fantastic Four. I'm reading Daredevil. I loved good old shield, anything that was in Stun of Origins I read, but there was no Spider-Man in this. So I never had that intro Spider-Man until they went for the, you know, you know, those stunts that people do now. And you're like, no one's going to be fooled for that and jump on for that. And I was totally like suckered and jumped on and was like, that's the greatest thing I've ever seen. So I felt like it had to be discussed. I don't know. For me, like so much of Secret Wars is just like the dream, like, you know, 15 year old, like we're going to take all of these characters and put them in one place and see what happens. You know what I mean? It feels like such a perfect, I don't know, like a really early kind of thought experiment, headcanon type story that, you know, I wonder if that is, you know, this being an early influence on you as a reader, as like a Marvel fan, Brad, I wonder if that sort of planted those seeds. Well, you know what? It's the plot of a 13-year-old child, right? <laughs> right. I mean, credit to Jim Shooter, like that's all it was, right? It's like, let's just make everyone fight. We'll take the best heroes. We'll take the best villains. We'll throw them on a planet and they'll all fight. And you're like, yeah, why do we think of that? But what they got is actually something really good out of it. And I think you know, as someone who's written a big event book for DC, like write an identity crisis, like these event books, like they're really hard to do. They're really tricky. I can't even imagine when you're doing, you know, what Christ on Infinite Earth did and really what Secret Wars did is like, and layer it in with like the next stories for over a year or two out, they found gold in it. And I love that. I love that. Like, yes, it started with this childish idea and for those who didn't read it and don't know, the, the key thing for Secret Wars was if you experienced it in real time, like now you can go on your Marvel app and go read them all and enjoy them. But when you were reading them in real time, all you knew was that in Spider-Man 251, Spider-Man had a red and blue costume like we all know. And he jumps into this machine that takes him somewhere. And then in Spider-Man 252, he jumps out of the machine. And it's like all this time later, and everything's changed. And you're like, what the, where did he get that black costume? The Fantastic Four came out and the thing was no longer a part of the Fantastic Four. She-Hulk was part of the Fantastic Four. And you were like, what happened in this place? All this story took place, but it, for us, it was just a month in time. And you were like, what is going on? And I remember that being the thing to me that was like, wow, like this is actually gonna be something really interesting. I mean, it's genius, really. It's built-in marketing for anybody who maybe didn't pick it up. Like, well, now I got to stick with it because you're not getting those answers right away. This event is going on for months and months and months. There's a whole bunch of great stuff. And, it, you know, ultimately it all begins. And there's um in the collection for this, for Marvel Superhero Secret Wars, I have to say the full name because it sort of leans into the absurdity of its existence, is Tom DeFalco, who was the editor on the book, talked about how this came about because a company wanted to make toys around superheroes. And so they went to DC and they made, I would assume the, um, the superpowers toys. And then Mattel comes to Marvel wanting to make Marvel toys, but they wanted an editorial bent to it. And so you get the secret wars toys, which I loved. And so Marvel creates this to put all their main characters in one place, tie them together to a toy line. So what you were saying about it sort of feeling like something that is a plot for kids is like triply true. It all works together and it's absurd how it all kind of comes together this way. 
and is still remembered so fondly by so many people. What are we, 35 years later, 37 years later? Well, let me tell you this, and I did not know this, but I found this out in, in preparation for our call, is that the original title for Secret Wars was apparently Cosmic Champions. Okay, that was the original title. And then someone at Mattel told Shooter, again, this is the lore, that boys in a focus group really reacted to things that had wars in it and secret in it. And that's where <laughs> Secret Wars came. Like It was such a play for marketing. I'm a firm believer that you can't do art by focus group, but Secret Wars, from what I understand, you know, originally where it came from was just this toy grab, like money play, and that never should work, but it worked. And full credit to them, they got good stuff out of it. And it's where, you know, Spider-Man got the black costume from. And for, you know, I know now we always change costumes and, you know, we have new Thors and we have new Iron Man and we have new Captain Americas. But back then, like it just didn't happen that way. So when Spider-Man changed his costume, for me as a young kid, I was like, this is our Spider-Man now. You had your old man, Spider-Man, those red and blue duds, never going to be seen again. But we're going to have this black costume forever. I actually reread the scene. I was like, I'm going to go back in Secret Wars and see what's the scene where Spider-Man gets the costume. And it's a spectacular scene because what happens is the Hulk and another character, are, their costumes all get ripped because they're in this big fight. And Spider-Man's like, my costumes are, where can I get a new one? And the Hulk is basically, who's smart Hulk at this point or something says, oh, just go in that room over there. And all you got to do is like, kind of like think about a new costume and I'll give it to you. And so Peter Parker's like, walks into this room of all this technology. And he's like, man, which machine did you mean? Hmm, I don't know, but I'll go to this one. And he sits down in a machine and I still, we don't know if this was the right machine or the wrong machine, but he thinks about needing a new costume and out comes this little black glob. And he's like, huh, that must be it. I wasn't thinking of a black glob, but okay, I'll take it. And it kind of like slithers up his arm in a way that we, of course, today say like, oh, that's Venom. That's not going to be good. But back then you were like, cool. And then the costume opens up at his like belly button and it's like a pocket. And then you can see when he uses it in Spider-Man, the first appearance of it in Amazing Spider-Man 252, he can like change out of his clothes and the costume just becomes his clothes. And I know it sounds so obvious now, and we've seen Tony Stark on screen with nanotech, like immediately just becoming a costume. But for kids back then, we never saw anything like that. It sounds so obvious now, but that was major high technology at the time. Nothing like I'd ever seen before. It's a great scene. That's from issue number eight. Um, let's make sure we give the credits for this. It's written by Jim Shooter. Pencils on all but two issues, I believe, by Mike Zeck. Bob Layton comes in to fill in in issues four and five. Christy Scheel and Nelson Yamtov do the colors. Inks by John Beatty, Jack Abel, and Mike Esposito. And we mentioned Tom DeFalco did the edits and Joe Rosen on letters. And on 252, we should also say, is also Tom DeFalco. And then Ron Friends draws and Roger Stern also plots on 252. Round friends. So good. So good. Oh, he had that like do a tone thing that was just so awesome. Yeah. One of the other key things for this, I think, is a sales point for Marvel superheroes Secret Wars is these dang covers. The covers are so perfect for getting you in. You know, you were talking about issue number eight. What was your reaction? You know, if you had already read the issue where you see the costume being used in Spider-Man. And then finally issue eight comes out and you see that iconic Spider-Man in the black suit on the cover. And like, here's the answers finally coming. Do you have a recollection? 
Yeah, I mean, and listen, without question, Mike Zek was just killing it at the time. Secret Wars 1 is one of the greatest Marvel covers of all time, as far as I'm concerned. His cap and his Wolverine are just right at the front. They're just amazing. I will tell you that issue four is one of my favorite covers of all time of any cover, and it actually influenced just the cover. I did a story for Justice League number 11, where Red Arrow and Vixen are trapped beneath the water under like tons of debris, and it was always influenced from me as a kid. It's a picture of a giant mountain that falls on all the heroes. It's like a tiny sliver at the bottom and the rest of the cover is all mountain. And the Hulk is holding up the entire mountain. It's the full story. So by the time you get to issue eight, we've waited a year, right? We saw Spider-Man have the black costume. We've lived with him having the black costume, but we don't know how it happened. And then issue eight came in and the cover of it is so good. And I want to read you, you know, like at the, it's got to be a word for it, but like on the front of every cover, there's like the extra words, you know, like I'm going to call it the subhead, but the one that it says on Secret Wars 8 is amid the chaos, there comes a costume, which makes no (laughs) sense, right? It's like, like behind Spider-Man, everyone is fighting to the death. There is murder and every hero, it's a Fantastic Four and the X-Men and the Avengers and the Hulk and the Wrecking Crew, and they're all fighting at once. And literally there comes a costume and you're like, what? But it's so good. And I remember being like, here's the costume. And that was all I wanted. And it delivered on every level. Yeah. I'm looking at all the covers now. Eight. So good. Four, obviously. So perfect. One and then six, which are like sort of the opposite ends. You know, one is the villains, one is the heroes. Ten is my favorite of the bunch because I just love Dr. Doom is among my favorite characters and just him there battered bruised costume falling apart and still he fights and still he is still fighting man that's the thing the great thing about secret wars is eventually it's really just a dr doom story i can't even tell you what happened in the last three issues because all i remember is just dr doom being like okay dummies i'm in charge everyone else is fighting and playing the game and dr doom is like you oafs like (laughs) i'm the smartest guy in the room richards and i'm taking the beyonders power like i'm going for the king and I will not miss. Yeah. Uh, Tucker, do you have a favorite of the bunch? I think four. I love that most of it is just that rock. And then speaking of the amidst the chaos, there comes a costume. I love the the subheader. See, you're using it now. <laughs> nope, it's subheader. <laughs> subheader. It's so perfect and just straightforward. Beneath 150 billion tons stands the Hulk. And he's not happy. I just love that. I think it's great. (laughs) It's great. (laughs) All right. Quick aside here, Brad. I was peeking at your Twitter before we started reading. I saw a picture of you, Mark Guggenheim, and Michael Green, three of the best writers around, and three guys who really know their comics. When you're hanging out with that crew, do comics ever come up? Is that something that you have like your comics friends, and are you like sort of in regular discussion about what's going on in the comics world with buddies and things like that? You know, those two guys. So I said, we need a cool name because there have not been that many bald Jewish men together in one room (laughs) than when the three of us were together last week. Um, You know, the, the truth is, is we all met, we did a TV show years ago called Jack and Bobby. There was no better, nerdier, amazing group than, than this writer's room. And none of us were all at the start of our careers. This is, you know, 15 years ago. And we were just all excited to like, kind of find, you know, again, it was 
right at the cusp of the internet where you were just happy to find someone else who liked right. comics that you liked. <laughs> and so we were just happy to be together. I still love the fact that when we get together, all we do is kind of do our nerd thing. Cause what else do comic people get together <laughs> to do? Yeah. Let's jump back to secret wars a little bit. Now, Brad, you were talking about the cover to issue number eight and everybody is fighting in the background. They're murdering each other. And in rereading it, I was like, Man, this is more <laughs> hardcore than I remember. At one point, Wasp oh, yeah. is killed. Hulk's leg is broken. There's all the stuff that is going on with, with Claw. There's massive injuries and brutality on every side. Like the stuff that they do to She-Hulk, it is, it's intense. It is so ruthless. And there were, it was back then, the panel count is so different. Like right now, if you look at panels... We tend to be on average about a four or five panels a page, right? Almost every page in that book is like seven panel pages. And it's not just the villains who are doing it. Like Wrecker, like just, you know, smashes Iron Man in the face. And then on the next page, you have like Hawkeye is shooting someone with not like a fun arrow, but like just literally puts an arrow into one of the wrecking crew. The next page is like Enchantress trying to like seduce Hulk. And the next page is like Captain America ramming his shield into her face. And you're like, we're only 10 pages in. <laughs> and like every page is like a brutal, horrible thing. And when I reread it, I was like, where's the black costume? Like, where, <laughs> where, Lo and behold, shall come a costume. Like, where's the costume? And it's like on the last two, three pages. And then, by the way, Peter's like, you know what I need? I don't need like medical attention. Where do I get free clothes? And everyone's like, yeah, yeah, just back here. You know, we originally talked about trying to just do the first half of this, but it's hard to talk about Marvel superheroes, secret wars without talking about it as a, as a whole. It's 12 issues and the doom of it all in particular. I just wanted to go back to one more time because he's doom. He's great. And really like the only reason doom falters at the end, he's gotten the beyonders powers and he's sort of like, it's a little bit too much. He's sort of his own worst enemy. He's Dr. Doom of it all. The heroes, like they win by sort of default-ish at the end. But I remember the last page of 11 and the beginning of 12 are so like upsetting. You see Captain America like atomized and you see Captain America's shield shattered. It's wild. It's so good. Yeah. Well, and that's the other thing is, you know, you can see like the remnants of the shield. It's all broken apart. I mean, everything's beaten, everything's done. And I mean, I looked through the like issue 12 and there's no heroes. There's no heroes in issue 12 at all. It's literally like claw and doom. And then suddenly you finally see Thor's hammer come in and then the heroes come, but that's like 20 pages into the book. I'm curious on the influence of this read and maybe just what you were taking in at the time and, and between essentially when you started picking up comics in general and when you started to make it as a professional writer, because we talked about it, this is like the 13 year olds, like dream story that happens here. And I'm curious, Brad, as, as a writer of complex, thoughtful novels and, and so many other things, like, can you quantify going back and say, oh, there's this element of the story that really turns me on. There's this element of the story that looking back on it, I feel like I still identify with today. And if I pick this comic up today, I would be really excited and interested to see what they're going to do with that part of it. Or is it just kind of like candy, you know? No, yeah, no, no. Listen, what I love then, and I still, it's funny when I did the reread, 
the same things jumped out at me in ways that I didn't realize all these years later is I love all the little quiet moments that were character. My first fan letter to comics, and I wrote them, I think, to like Justice League and Teen Titans when I was a kid, but the first one that got printed was an Infinity Inc. It was like issue number four or five, whenever they started printing letters. But I wrote in response to Infinity Incorporated number one. And this is 13-year-old me. And it literally says, I just love the way the characters are portrayed so realistically. That's the language I used at 13 years old. The characters are portrayed so realistically. And at 13 years old, that's what got me going. Is like when it felt like not a superhero, you know, stupid punch fest, but when it felt like this could happen. And I think what I loved was I loved, you know, Ben Grimm being like, I got to stay here. I got work to do on myself. And I don't know who I am yet because I'm not the thing right now where I can move around and change. And, and I love She-Hulk being like, maybe this isn't where I belong. And I love Captain America doubting himself and wondering if, you know, almost like the shield, is it going to work? Is it not? I, I love the Hulk just in the moment of his hardest moment, who we know is stronger than anyone. Can he actually hold this mountain above him? You know, and I love Peter Parker, the whole book. He's such an outsider. The X-Men are in their team and the Avengers are on their team and the Fantastic Four are on their team. And then even Spider-Woman feels like a part of something, but he's just always alone. And man, did that hit home for me. I can't tell you like who punched who on what page. That I had to reread to remember. All of that was lost from my memory. But what I never forgot all those years were those little quiet moments of talking between the characters where you were like, this seems like really like I, there's a point where like, they don't know if the X-Men don't trust the Avengers and you could tell they're all kind of like, they're in these separate universes. They're not friends. Um, and I was like, that seems real. And then when they become friends and trust each other, you're like, those are human emotions. And that's what really worked for me. And I think absolutely put me on like paths to other things that I eventually, you know, myself loved is taking that big crossover, but really focusing on the, on the smaller details and the, and the intricacies of their lives. I'll be honest. When I think of this book, I don't have fond memories because I didn't grow up reading it. I remember my first, I probably had like a couple of issues that I got over time and everything had happened already. All the, all the stuff that sort of like you connected with, Brad, had already happened years beforehand when I was getting deeper and deeper into comics. Rereading it, I enjoyed it more than my memories had painted it for me. And I, I'm, I'm glad we got to, at least I got to rediscover it in this way and actually talk through some of these things and see it from, from your perspective as well. I have a, a deeper appreciation for all of it right now. Every year my son goes to camp, I, you know, we load him up with comics so we can read there. And this summer he took Secret Wars with him. And what was so fascinating is he couldn't get past like issue six or seven. He did not respond to it because he's like, I, I know what the black costume is. I know what this is. He didn't really care about Doom and he certainly didn't believe the Beyonder. But once he finally like got it in the full trade and could sit in one sitting, he was like, I got it. I read it. I said, what did you like? And you know what he said? Dr. Doom. He liked Dr. Doom being like, screw y'all. The thing that this also brought to mind for me when I was doing the reread was, and Ryan, this is as much a prompt for you. I love placing reads in context, not just in the context of where they were at the time, but in the broader context of the scope of Marvel Comics as a whole and in a more abstract way of a timeline that extends into the future. So I, it got me thinking about like, what are the more recent 
you know, maybe over the last five, 10 years, crossovers and, and events that, you know, in 37 years or whatever it is, like we'll be looking back and saying it with the level of familiarity that we all say the words Secret Wars, you know what I mean? As just like a touchstone, obvious, huge landmark moment for for whatever reason. And I, yeah, it, I, I was curious what you guys might think about that. I don't know that there is something that will have that same effect as Secret Wars because, and even Tom DeFalco talks about it in the intro or, or there's, there's something in the, in the trade that says like, this started a tradition in big superhero comics where there was every year or so some big story where everybody has to come together. And I think we have great stories. I love War of the Realms. I have a tattoo for War of the Realms. Like I, I'm all in on it, but I don't know that any will have that effect. I think something like Secret Invasion. And then there's something else, you know, Jasmine, our producer just obviously threw it out there. Civil War. Civil War. Yeah, Civil War is, is probably one that that has that that big blockbustery feel that resonates, you know, years and years later. I, I will say I agree with you, Ryan, like, but for us, that's true. But there's a 13-year-old kid, Jasmine being one of them. If you're 13 and you read Civil War, your life has changed in that moment. Like, there are people who are like, it's Kyle Rayner for me. Screw Hal Jordan. There are people who love Ben Riley, you know, who are like, I don't want Peter. Br-. And now Miles Morales is, you know, you never, ever would think that you could ever replace it. They had to create an entire other universe to make another Spider-Man until everyone was like, yeah, we really like that one. Give us that one. And to me, what I love about comics is it is a patchwork. It is this quilt that is knit over time and decades and like now nearly a century. And at whatever moment in time, that storyline is someone's first and makes the biggest impression. And for us, you know, Secret Wars may be that first big crossover. And I personally am like at that jaded old age where I'm like, I don't want to see a crossover every year, even though I did one myself, right? Like we were the first (laughs) ones like, but I'm like, I don't want to see it because I know what's going to happen and no one's going to stay dead and it's all going to come back. And why would you ever do this? until I read a good one. And then I'm like, I like that one. And for all we complain about it, at the end of the day, the reason you keep getting them is because it works. And these events make people jump in and jump on and say, what's that? To me, I obviously always think you've got to come from it from a character perspective and say, what are you really saying about, uh, you know, same thing as any other story. What are you saying about the human condition? What are you saying about us as people? What, are you, what is the heart of the story? But I'm telling you, like those big events for when you're, when you're 13 and reading them, Boy, they leave a mark. Yeah, that's a great point. I and I'm sure there's people listening who are yelling at me, being like, "Did you forget about an Infinity Gauntlet?" <laughs> and I did. I forgot about it. It being the one for me. It is my Secret War, like it is for you. It's Civil War for Jazz. It's for me. It was Infinity Gauntlet. I remember being 10 years old, picking issue six up off a of spinner rack, and everything changed. So I, yes, 100%. Those personal connections mean so much. I just think to your question, Tucker a larger cultural shift. There are so few and far between of resonating for us as a collective group, but I welcome more. I want them all. Well, it's funny. I think it's funny for me. Secret Wars is like the thing. No one knows what Secret Wars is. You have to be a real deep cut nerd to know what Secret Wars is, but to certain people, that's the first big time you got to see everybody together. Like, yeah, they did. You know, there was some X-Men Fantastic Four crossovers and there was some Avengers and X-Men crossover. Like, but this was the one where you were like, everybody's in. And when you have what Marv Wolfman and George Perez did with, with Christ on infinite earths, 
DC Marvel knew exactly what was happening, right? Secret Wars is 1984 to 1985. I think Christ on Earth is eight. I think is also 85. 85 to 86. I was going to say it ends in 86. You know, there's a reason why like Doom Patrol and X-Men are created at the same time and both have wheelchair-bound guys and freaks on their team. Like these things in the zeitgeist, they kind of come at the same time. And it's pretty amazing to watch both companies working separately still kind of are veering to the same places. And people eventually want to see, you know, like I still love when I can see, we used to, when I was a kid, we had um, uh, Battle of Network Stars. And it was like the way you could see all like ABC, the stars on ABC and CBS and NBC were all like fighting the Olympics. And I remember being like, that's the greatest thing ever. Or watching Mork from Mork on Happy Days, like is where he launched. Like those crossovers were amazing. And when you get those, that's all Secret Wars is, right? It's it's to go right where we started is it's a child's idea. And there are parts of it that can be done so well and there are parts of it that can be done so poorly. But if you can get some good out of it, like full credit to them, they figured that out. And more important, they get they got a year's worth of story out of it. You know, they've they've pulled some changes, figured things out, changed teams, and and they they got a lot of juice out of that squeeze. It also just blew my mind remembering that this is a comic thing that happened over the course of a year just quickly to decide like i'm so used to these being like weekly things now man i sat there issue one and the whole friggin' marvel universe changed and, and they didn't tell me why like you were a 13 year old kid and you read your issue and your hero jumped into this high-tech device and was transported elsewhere the next issue they jumped out and they were different people and you were like how did that happen oh here are 12 issues we'd like to sell you to explain it. Yes, mainline that right into my vein and give it to me. Stab it into my eyes. I want that right now. And it took eight months before you got Spider-Man in his costume. They didn't tell you on issue one. You waited eight months and you liked it because you were 13 and you were growing up in the 80s and that was all you could have for fun. I got one last piece of factual, mind-blowing stuff to share with us before we get ready to wrap this up. So Secret Wars... First issue releases in January 24th of 84. The final issue releases, obviously the cover dates are a little bit later. That's why we always say 84 to 85, but the final issue releases Christmas Day-ish, right around there, depending on when the stores are open, of 1984. Two weeks later, Crisis on Infinite Earths number one releases. So it's January 3rd, 1985. That's magic right there. That's like, that's so cool. Oh, it's magic. I love when the universe works like that. Yeah. So you had two years, two 12-issue storylines. You start January of 84, every month there's something that completely changes a company. And and you know, and we all know, you know, Marv Wolfman, who's a dear friend and you know, I adore, like these things take years to put together, right? There the Christ on Infinite Earth, especially with George Perez on art, has to be being worked on before this issue is like going anywhere. Because it take, it's it's an entire company crossover, the same way I'm sure Marvel had to the year before figure out all the different ways that they were going to figure this out as they were going. Brad, you got two relatively new children's books out. I have several of your children's books upstairs, some of them autographed by you. So later on, when Catherine gets a little bit older and she'll be like, I didn't write on that book. I write on every other book. <laughs> but whose writing is on that book? I'll get to explain to her all of that. Tell us about I Am Oprah Winfrey and I Am I Am Pay. Yeah. So, um, you know, for those who haven't followed our ongoing conversations on every Marvel podcast I appear on, I just wanted my kids to have better heroes to grow up with. 
I wanted to give them real life heroes. I mean, we all love our Spider-Man and our Thors and our Captain Americas, but I wanted to give them heroes that they can look in the history books and see as real people, heroes of kindness and compassion and, and of character. I think as a culture today, we've really, and it's what I love most about comics is they remind us what good character is. I still, it's why Stanley is one of my heroes. And we started with I'm Amelia Earhart. We did I'm Abraham Lincoln and I'm Rosa Parks and I'm Robert Einstein and Jackie Robinson. We did I'm Jim Henson for my kid who loves, is just creative. And I'm Walt Disney just to teach him, you know, what, what you can do with the dream. And every time we do these books, you know, Chris Eliopoulos is our amazing artist who is obviously a Marvel writer and an artist in his own right. And every time we do these books, we are just looking at our own kids and saying, what do we want to give them? And I looked around at where we were and I looked at my kids and we're, and we're in a culture of anxiety right now. As adults, we're anxious. Our kids are anxious. And I knew it was time to do a book to help them deal with that. And it was time to do a book about self-love. And so we did I Am Oprah Winfrey because when Oprah Winfrey, we always tell the stories when they were kids, when Oprah Winfrey was a little kid, she was so self-conscious about her looks and so anxious about them that she used to sleep with a clothespin on her nose because she wanted to make her nose smaller. She thought it was too wide as a little girl. And, you know, when she gets a little bit older and her her first producers, and again, she's like barely out of being a teenager, her first producers tell her that she cares too much. They tell her she has the wrong body type and she doesn't look the right way. And, you know, her skin is the wrong color and she's too involved in the story. There's a family whose house burns down. And the next day after covering it for the news, Oprah goes to the family and brings them blankets to like make sure they're okay. And the producer screams at her saying like, you can't get involved with the story. And she's like, the story? you got to be a good human being. And basically her whole life, you know, Oprah's told that she cares too much and there's no such thing. And the only thing you ever have to be is you. And that's the best gift you give yourself. And I want my daughter to hear that lesson. And I want my sons to hear that lesson. That The only person you need to be is you. And uh, so we did, I am Oprah Winfrey there. And then the truth is for I am, I am pay. I am pay is an amazing Asian American architect. The number one request we had was we had all these kids around the country who were writing to Chris and I, and they said, you know, we saw you did a white hero and a black hero and a Hispanic hero. And you did, you know, you have Muslim heroes coming because you're doing those heroes. You have Indian heroes, you have Native American heroes, you have everyone, but where's an Asian American hero? And we listened to those kids who write us all these letters. And so I.M. Pei is about, if you don't know I.M. Pei, the architect who designed the Louvre, who designed JFK's library, designed some of the most amazing buildings around the world. And what I love about what we got to do in the book is it's actually part of it is a pop-up book. So when you see the Louvre, we act, actually has a pop-up element. And so you can see in three dimensions what he built. And again, for, for my son who loves creativity, it's just a really fun way to do it. So that, so oh, I am Oprah Winfrey is the current one. I am Pei is the next one. And we are just having a lot of fun. After that, we're doing Muhammad Ali, we're doing Malala, and then we're doing Dolly Parton. So we have a lot of fun ones coming up. That's awesome. Um, and obviously... You're doing something right with these. Uh, you're ruffling some feathers over in, in York, Pennsylvania. There's some people who are uh, oh, upset yeah, with some of these. That. Yeah, they banned I Am Rosa Parks and I Am Martin Luther King Jr. The school board literally banned I Am Rosa Parks, I Am Martin Luther King Jr. When you are banning books, you're on the wrong side of history. When we heard about it, we got amazingly involved with the community there. We got these two amazing women started putting the books in their public their little free libraries. And we started having people on the internet, on our Twitter accounts and our Instagram accounts. We said, go buy every book on this list of this band list or 150 books more than that. We said, don't just buy our books, buy every book on this list. And the books started pouring in. 
And thankfully, because of amazing students in the district, and I went to the school board meeting, Chris went to the school board meeting, I spoke there, and I thought it was like, wow, we've really saved the day. But then the real heroes came. And after I spoke, all these, not just concerned mothers and a member of the military, but all the kids and students started speaking. And Ryan, if you want to know what heroes really look like, it was all these high school students who were like, how can you take away these books on heroes like like there was Malala's book, there was Sesame Street's book on teaching racism. When you're banning Big Bird and Ernie and Bert, you screwed up. And of course, Rosa Parks and Dr. King. And, and by the time the meeting was done, they reversed the ban and the, the list was released. But uh, it just shows you what a crazy world we're living in right now and how we all need heroes more than ever. Amen to that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Brad, for for talking to us. Thank you for making artwork that matters. And thanks for diving into the the black suit with us here. No, thanks, Tucker. Thanks, Ryan. You know, I love talking to you guys. And, and obviously, thanks, Jasmine, for leading the path. And, uh, and also to Marvel, who gave me all those heroes when I started, right? I mean, that stuff is, it's no, it's no coincidence that that's what I write about on these real heroes. They all come from when I was a kid. And, lo- you know, I wrote the obituary for Stan Lee for Entertainment Weekly. And it all talks about just, you know, someone who's willing to go out there and use whatever platform they have as a soapbox to try and put good into the world. And, and Stan Lee and Mr. Rogers and, and Jim Henson taught me you could use your creativity to put good into this world. And that's all Chris and I are trying to do is use our creativity to put some good into this world. Heck yeah. Thank you, Brad. Thanks, Brad. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much to Brad for joining us for this conversation. Such a great writer, such a great talker, a great interview, and a really, really intelligent guy with obviously so much Marvel knowledge. We need more Brad around all the time. A huge fan. Thanks again to Brad for diving into a series that is worthy of a podcast in and of itself, Secret Wars. Seriously. All right, that about wraps it up. This episode of Marvel's Pull List was produced by Ryan Fanagos, Tucker Marcus, Jasmine Strada, with help from Megan Bagala. Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. And Brad Barton is Marvel's Pull List audio development manager. And Tucker, did you see, um, it was going around Slack channels recently, Brad, our, our Brad Barton had produced a fan-made Amazing Spider-Man comic called Amazing Spider-Man 80.brad. Um, he put that out. Um, he did it all on his own, on his own time, and he made it. He was passing it around Slack. I think he's trying to like angle into working on some comics. Did you get a chance to look at it? Absolutely. It was basically identical to 80.bey, but you know, obviously Peter Parker, brown hair, Ben Riley, red hair. He just changed the hair color to like a nice, beautiful silver. And you know what? Well done. Well done, Brad. More Brad M, more Brad B. More Brads all around. <laughs> I'm Ryan. And I'm Tucker. And this is Marvel. Your universe.